Anti-Semitism is sometimes called the oldest hatred, and one never knows where it will pop up next. That said, many people have been surprised, as well as disappointed, to see it crop up in Ireland in the form of legislation promoting economic warfare against Israel. On this special edition of Foreign Policy, I read my column on this topic and then discuss the causes, consequences, and context of Ireland's move with Melanie Phillips, a British journalist, broadcaster, and author. Her latest works include memoir, Guardian Angel, and her first novel, The Legacy. I'm Cliff May, and you're listening to Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Ireland's surprise attack. New Irish legislation threatens Israelis, Palestinians, and the Irish economy. January 27 was Holocaust Remembrance Day, and in America and Europe, people were working hard to put an end to anti-Semitism. Those people can look forward to permanent employment. Anti-Semitism is a virus that can be treated, but not cured. It morphs. It's been said before, but bears repeating. In the 20th century, the goal of extreme anti-Semites was a Europe cleansed of Jews. In the 21st century, the goal of extreme anti-Semites is a Middle East cleansed of a Jewish state. For many, never again means never again in the 20th century will European Jews be slaughtered by Nazis. As for Middle Eastern Jews, in the 21st century, they're fair game. Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader of the Islamic Republic of Iran, expresses this candidly. Israel must be burned to the ground and made to disappear from the face of the earth, he has said. Eager to set those fires are Hezbollah and Hamas. Jeremy Corbyn, leader of Britain's Labour Party, has described both groups as friends. But that's just talk. The pertinent question is what can be done to further imperil Israel and the Jews who live there. In early January, the lower house of the Irish parliament passed legislation, 78 votes to 45, offering one answer, wage economic warfare against Israel, in particular by criminalizing a range of business transactions with Jews in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Golan Heights. You should know, as perhaps some Irish parliamentarians do not, that the Golan Heights came under Israeli control after Syrian attacks in the Six-Day War of 1967. No one who identifies as a Palestinian lived there then or lives there now. The implication that Israel should hand over the Golan and its indigenous Druze population to Syria's mass-murdering dictator Bashar al-Assad is ludicrous. As for East Jerusalem, it contains the Jewish quarter of the Old City, a place where Jews have lived since the time of King David, over 3,000 years ago. Through slaughter and forced exile, foreign invaders, one after another, have attempted to make them disappear. 
Jordan's Arab Legion seized and occupied East Jerusalem in the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. Also conquered territories that had been known as Judea and Samaria, thereafter renamed the West Bank. Losing them was the price Jordan paid for joining in the 1967 war against the Jewish state. On several occasions since, Israeli leaders have offered to turn over more than 90% of the West Bank to Palestinian leaders in exchange for peace. Those leaders, there have been only two, Yasser Arafat and Mahmoud Abbas, have refused. What they have insisted upon instead is land for and recognition of a Palestinian state while continuing their fight to eliminate the Jewish state. Some proponents of the BDS for Boycott, Divest, and Sanctions campaign forthrightly state that as their goal. Others insist that they favor a two-state solution, with Israel's withdrawal from what they call Palestinian territories seen as a step forward. But that theory has been tested. In 2005, the Israelis withdrew from Gaza, a territory taken from Egypt in the 1967 war. Soon after, Hamas fought, literally, not metaphorically, Fatah, its rival. Hamas won and turned Gaza into a platform for continuing attacks against Israelis using missiles, terrorist tunnels, and other means. Hamas leaders have consistently said they will never accept Israel's existence within any borders. Irish parliamentarians might want to play out the hand they are attempting to deal. Israel withdraws from the West Bank. Hamas takes over from Fatah. Missiles are launched at nearby Tel Aviv. Israelis defend themselves. Bloody battles take lives on both sides. Over time, the West Bank resembles Gaza or Syria. Is this really the result Ireland wants to facilitate? There is a chance that the legislation passed by the Irish Parliament will fail to become law, though probably not because the arguments I've made above have resonated. Ireland has attracted some of America's largest companies, including Apple, Microsoft, Google, and Facebook. They pay lots of taxes and provide lots of jobs. Obeying the Irish law would likely mean violating existing U.S. federal laws that prohibit American firms from participating in foreign boycotts not endorsed by Washington. More than two dozen state laws also penalize firms that engage in such boycotts. The U.S. in 2017 accounted for two-thirds of all foreign direct investment in Ireland. So in the end, this law could have more impact on Ireland's economy than on anything happening in the Middle East. Irish Foreign Minister Simon Coveney has said the legislation also runs counter to European trade regulations. Ireland's Attorney General has called the bill legally unsound. Based on such considerations, the executive branch of the Irish government may find a way to shove legislation, again based on what it will cost Ireland, not because it's perceived as unfair and discriminatory or apt to fuel more and bloodier conflicts between Palestinians and Israelis. Final point. There are disputed territories around the world. Yet Irish parliamentarians have had little to say about Turkey's occupation of northern Cyprus, Russia's annexation of Crimea, Morocco's claim to the Western Sahara, or China's stranglehold on Tibet. In only one Middle Eastern country do Jews, Arabs, Muslims, Christians, Druze, and others hold citizenship, vote on a regular basis, and enjoy freedom. Only one country in the world has given up land for peace and is willing to do so again. Irish politicians now want to single out that country for punishment. It's their special way of commemorating Holocaust Memorial Day. Like I said, the virus morphs. 
Melanie, good to be with you. Here's something that puzzles me. The Irish, certainly those in the South, take self-determination very seriously. They are Irish. They are not British, and I understand that. The British in the past treated the Irish abominably. So the Irish have their own nation state. We have a capital in Dublin. Why then are so many Irish so unsympathetic to the desire of the Jewish people, arguably the oldest still existing nation of the Middle East, to also exercise self-determination, to have a nation state, to insist on its most basic right, its, its right to exist? Arguably, Ireland is the most hostile country in Western Europe towards Israel. Prejudice against Israel goes hand in hand with the belief in liberal universalism. Ireland is a very, very slavish member of the European Union. And it's brought into that whole way of looking at the world, that there is something intrinsically wrong with the Western nation state, that it is intrinsically bigoted and exclusive and illegitimate and needs to be subordinated to transnational institutions such as the European Union. I agree that doesn't sit easily with its desire to be a nation state, as you have said, it fought for that uh, right to be a nation state against the United Kingdom. The Republic of Ireland fought for its independence as a nation. And it has, I think, a very insecure sense of itself as a nation, as a result of its history. It has a very, very large chip on its shoulder. It believes itself to have suffered under British colonialism. And consequently, it identifies with other peoples who are acknowledged by liberal universalist anti-colonialists as similarly oppressed among whom the Palestinians are, of course, the iconic poster children, resembles very greatly the Palestinian people with which it so clearly identifies, because the Palestinians are a culture with a very shaky sense of themselves, an outsized chip on their shoulder, and dependent entirely, or rather infantilized, by being dependent upon others for their survival. I I think that's the sort of common cause that it makes, and it looks at Israel. Israel is the paradigm nation-state which is entirely sure of what it is and prepared to fight to the death to defend what it is and to defend its existence as a proud nation state composed of a people who know exactly what they are. A country like Ireland, which doesn't have all that, it's a kind of red rag to a bull almost. So it's a kind of resistance to Israel for all these reasons, resistance to the Jewish people for all these reasons, and a being drawn to the Palestinians as kindred spirits because of what Ireland perceives as its similar history of colonialist oppression under colonialism. In World War II, Ireland did not, could not choose between Winston Churchill on the one hand and Adolf Hitler on the other hand and chose to be neutral. Well, exactly so. It was neutral and disgracefully so. The government of Ireland denied residential visas to many Jews who were trying to get in, having escaped from Nazi Germany. That was during the war and after the war to Holocaust survivors. Now, the government at that time was a party called Fianna Foyle. Now, Fianna Foyle remains a major Irish party. It's not currently in power, but the party that is in power, Fianna Gael, is dependent upon Fianna Foyle for uh, its survival in government as a kind of coalition. Fianna Foyle is currently in a kind of contest, a kind of beauty contest with Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin is the constitutional arm of 
what used to be the provisional IRA. The IRA was its military wing. The IRA was in cahoots with the PLO, with Yasser Arafat. The IRA and the PLO trained together, discussed strategy and tactics together. It was an infernal alliance. The government of Ireland, the Fianna Gael government, which is dependent on Fianna Fáil, as I say, for its survival, is nevertheless very opposed to this bill, not because it itself is so warmly disposed towards Israel, but because it rightly fears that this bill will bring it into direct conflict with the European Union itself, whose trade laws this bill will flout, and it will also bring it into conflict uh, with the United States government, which has passed this law um, outlawing BDS, threatening uh, condign measures against companies that collaborate with BDS motions against against Israel. Melanie, I've got the impression that the Northern Irish have a rather different view towards Israel. Is that true? And is that because Northern Ireland is British and because Northern Ireland is majority Protestant? There was a street in Belfast some years ago during the Troubles, uh, which was divided. On one side were Catholics living in those houses, and the other side, uh, the houses were occupied by Unionists, by Protestants. And there was bunting uh, strung out between the lampposts on either side. And on one side, it was uh, the, the orange and green of the Republic of Ireland flag, the sidewalk paving stones were painted in, that, in those colours. And on the other side, the bunting was the flag of Israel. And the paving stones were painted in blue and white. It was this extraordinary thing. The Catholic Republicans espoused the uh, Palestinian cause, but were against Israel. And the Unionists, Protestants, Unionists, were pro-Israel. That remains absolutely the case. Um, and of course, the Republic of Ireland um, is uh, majority Catholic. Um, and it is pro-Palestinian. Um, and the majority in Northern Ireland are uh, Protestants, and they are very staunchly pro-Israel. Let me play not quite devil's advocate, but perhaps advocate of those in Ireland who do want to punish Israel and might say, look, we only mean with the legislation that we're considering to target those Israelis or those Jews who are living in what they would call the occupied Palestinian territories. What would you reply to that? First of all, it's not just the settlers, it's not just the so-called settlers, the Jews living in those territories, uh, who would be affected. As I understand it, and I was told this by a lawyer who's following, the law that they are proposing to pass would mean that, for example, hypothetically, if an Irish tourist were to be visiting Jerusalem and were to visit the Western Wall under the aegis of a tour guide, an Israeli tour guide, who the tourist would pay, when the tourist got back to Ireland, that tourist would be notionally liable to be arrested, charged with a criminal offence and jailed for taking part or receiving a service provided by Israel in connection with the disputed territories, in this case, the Western Wall, which is considered to be not Part of, not part of Israel uh, by the Irish. To that extent, it's not just the settlers um, who would be uh, involved. The other thing is that this is very much, um, this bill is very much the product of a great movement of NGOs and other similar guys and types who are pushing BDS generally against Israel and who are beating the drum now for example, to boycott the Tel Aviv Eurovision Song Contest. So it's very clearly a kind of bit of a Trojan horse for a much broader boycott of Israel generally. You know, anti-Semitism also is on the rise on the east side of the, the, the channel, not least in, in, in the UK. And of course, what comes to mind immediately is 
is Jeremy Corbyn, who's the head of the Labor Party, and who I think is fairly obviously uh, somebody who has ill feelings towards uh, towards Jews and towards towards Israel. So you you had in your recent in a recent column called this the the new anti-Semitism. What what do you have in mind in terms of what's going on um, in in Britain and in and in Europe more generally? Well, the new anti-Semitism is the use of the state of Israel as the target, as the mechanism for what is, um, in in virtually every other respect, the old anti-Semitism, in that all the characteristics of traditional anti-Semitism, the obsessional hatred of Israel to the extent to the to, to the exclusion almost of everything else, uh, the unique double standards by which Israel uh, is held. Uh, up, up to a standard which nobody else is expected to meet. The accusation that Israel is responsible for crimes of which it is not only innocent, but is actually the victim. Um, the imputation to Israel of some sort of cosmic evil that it was, you know, it, it is it is a uniquely and almost supernaturally powerful uh, conspiratorial global force designed to put everybody else at risk to its own ends. These are all the tropes that were used against Jews throughout the centuries, either through theology, through the Catholic, through the, through, through the Catholic Church um, centuries ago, uh, or through racial anti-Semitism, through Nazi, uh, Nazi ideology. So they're the same characteristics, but they're used against Israel. And this is no coincidence, um, because you know what was directed against Jews as people, either for theological or on racial grounds, is now directed to the Jews as a people in their own homeland. So to that extent, it's the new anti-Semitism. The point about Corbyn's new anti-Semitism is that he doesn't mind at all. He doesn't have anything against Jews as Jews, provided they are hostile to Israel. His problem is with Jews who are Zionists. His problem is, is with Zionists or with Jews who support Israel. Um, and that may seem to many a curious distinction to make, but it is actually the distinction that is made. What it means is that people like Jeremy Corbyn will simply never, ever admit that what they are espousing is a form of anti-Semitism. Zionism is merely the, the right of the Jewish people to be in their own land. It's not understood, and it's not understood, in my view, by many Jews as well. Let me suggest uh, a slightly different formulation and see what you think of it, and that is, in my mind, somebody who was anti-Zionist in 1946 may not in any sense have been expressing hostility towards Jews. There was no Jewish state. There was Israel didn't exist. The, the Jewish people had not reestablished a, a nation state in their homeland. Once Israel exists, to be anti-Zionist means you don't want this state to continue. If this state doesn't continue, very unlikely that the way it ends is by people booking airplane tickets to London and to New York City or getting on boats. Now, if if the state should be eliminated, you have to figure a large percentage of the population will be eliminated as well. So anti-Zionism prior to the state of Israel may not have had anything to do with Jew hatred. But at this point, those who are saying we want the elimination of the nation state of Israel are saying we are really not too worried about what happens to the six million or so Jews who are currently living there. They'll work it out or they'll walk into the sea. It doesn't really matter. Yes, I think that's broadly right. Um, although, again, uh, in their minds, and I know this to be true because they've said it so often, 
they think it can all end like apartheid in South Africa ended without bloodshed. They think that. Uh, they have that in their minds. They do not begin to even consider the possibility that there is simply no comparison. Because in their minds, they've made this comparison. The two in their minds are equivalent, not directly equivalent, but they have many similarities. And consequently, they tell themselves it can end in the same peaceful way. You and I know that is absolute nonsense. More than half the population of Israel descends are Jews who are, are or are descended from uh, Jews who lived for many, many centuries in Arab countries from which they were forced to flee. They were driven out. They're not going back to Tripoli. They're not going back to Cairo. They're not going back to Baghdad, once a largely Jewish city, about a third, perhaps, in 1945. There's no way for them to go back to any of those places. Uh, and there's no way for them to expect that they would be treated as equal citizens of, a, of a, say, a Palestinian state at a time when the Palestinians are saying, any state we have must be, Juden reign must be free of Jews. Let me ask you one more question if we have time for, and that is, you talk also in your column about the the, the, the massive uh, immigration, people like to use the word migration, but it's not quite accurate, immigration um, from um, largely Islamic countries into Europe. Um, that too, you argue, is fomenting uh, Jew hatred. Well, yes, absolutely, because so many of that mass immigration are Muslims, and they bring with them endemic Jew hatred. A number of them are also politically extreme and threaten people beyond the Jewish communities of Europe. Uh, but certainly, they, you know, with this enormous rise in the number of Muslim immigrants in Europe, has come an enormous rise in anti-Semitism. It's not just immigrants; it's 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 the children who are being born in in the Muslim community. If you look at France, for example, horrifying rate of violence against Jews, uh, mainly perpetrated by Muslims. The two absolutely go together. Melody Phillips, thank you so much for this provocative discussion. Very interesting. I look forward to reading you and talking to you again um, in the days and months uh, and years ahead, hopefully. Thank you and thanks to everyone else who has been listening to Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fbd.org. You can also tweet us at Foreign Policy on Twitter. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy. Foreign Policy.